0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd the host of InTrust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
3: From Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow is at Google I.O. and joins us shortly. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, full earnings coverage ahead. We have Airbnb suffering its worst day ever as a public company and an interview with the Akamai CEO on its report. Details they follow. Plus, we'll cover the world of electric vehicles from Rivian Earnings to the conversation with the CEO of Blink Charging. We've got you covered. And we cover the latest in artificial intelligence with the CEO of Scale AI go live, of course, to Google I.O. event where our own Ed Ludlow is on the ground. But first, let's check in on these markets. As we assess a little bit of a mood shift today, money moving into tech stocks. Why? Because the inflationary pressure dials down a bit. CPI print coming in below that 5% handle. We therefore have NASDAQ, of course, interest rate sensitive tech stocks on the up, some 7 tenths of a percent. Two-year yield on the down as we expect. Maybe the Federal Reserve won't have to hike so hard going forward. Maybe a pause is on the agenda. We're off by almost eight basis points on the two-year yield, the front end of the curve. The U.S. dollar index also drops on that view that we get a more dovish tone going forward. Move it on and let's have a little look at what's happening in the world of crypto because we are indeed seeing dollar lower, so crypto on the upside. We're up by 1.9% on the OG that is Bitcoin. 28,000 is currently where we trade. Though it's interesting that we're still seeing some of the moon music around crypto just being on the dower side. Let's stick with it. Jane Street Group, Jump Crypto, two of the world's top market-making firms, they're actually pulling back from trading digital assets here in the United States. That's as regulators crack down on the industry. Look, Jane Street is going even further. It's scaling back its crypto ambitions globally because regulatory uncertainty has made it difficult for the firm to operate the business so much in the world of crypto so much in the world of tech earnings more broadly let's get to it because airbnb shares wow volatility there worst day in fact on record that's after reporting pretty muted outlook let's get the inside track with tom white who's da davidson senior research analyst and do you think what we heard from the company in terms of its forward-looking guidance vindicates the plunge in the share price today uh yeah
4: look i think uh you know airbnb's uh it's a stock that's got a premium valuation relative to its peers. And with a premium valuation, typically you get elevated expectations, uh, particularly around quarterly earnings prints. So, look, we're, we're not surprised to see the stock sell off a bit today. You know, I think the debate around the shares now is is whether the guidance, um, which shows basically increased marketing investment relative to what the street was expecting, you know, whether that increased spend is really just a timing related issue and just sort of a pull forward of of marketing from later in the year into the beginning of the year or if it's something uh, more structural so you know near-term numbers are going down you know that's why the stock is going down a bit but you know we still see value in shares of Airbnb over a longer-term time horizon.
3: I mean overall when you put together all the analyst recommendations and price targets, they still they think it's going to go higher. $132 as the general price target. We're seeing 17 buys, only 14 sells on the stock overall. And from your perspective, when you have a buy rating, $127 as it is and $140 price target, Tom, what do you make of the macro environment? We're just hearing about inflation, the pressure rolling over, but it looks as though airline prices are coming down, hotel prices are coming down. Is that good or bad for Airbnb?
4: Well, look, I think any kind of pressure on the consumer, any pressure on discretionary spending is, is not good for, for travel spending uh, over Overall, what we've seen though over the course of you know prior downturns is that uh, uh, leisure travel spending is is quite a resilient category. Uh, particularly if you look on a on a global basis, uh, you know even when times are tough, people still like to get away, still like to take vacations. You know I think in some ways Airbnb's recent announcement of uh, their Airbnb Rooms offering is maybe a little bit of a way to kind of get get ahead of that. Airbnb Rooms is. Sort of an example of Airbnb kind of disrupting itself a little bit by offering a, a significantly lower priced um, offering it's, its its single rooms in people's homes or apartments. Uh, I think they said last night 80% of that inventory is is less than $100 uh, per night. So, you know, we think overall travel is going to be resilient and uh, we think Airbnb because of the variety of the listings it has is probably going to be more resilient than other online travel assets.
3: Interesting. What about the market share that seems to be being eked out a little bit by booking.com, by VRBO, by some of the competitors out there, not to mention the old hotel industry as well?
4: Yeah, look, I I think, you know, talking about marketing shares right now is is a little bit tricky uh, just because of the the comps, the differences in the comps, right? Uh, You know, Airbnb uh, is comping, uh, you know, over the last few years, it's had explosive growth, right? During the pandemic, they were sort of the only game in town. People didn't feel comfortable going to big cities or going into hotels where they had to, you know, uh, mingle with with other folks. Um, uh, Airbnb's comps uh, are relatively tougher now, whereas the traditional kind of OTAs or the hotel industry comps are a little bit easier so just looking at the growth rates kind of you know this quarter next quarter I I think doesn't tell you know kind of the entire story. Um, You know the the bottom line is is a lot of these online travel assets all continue to grow significantly quickly I think you know discussions about market share uh, you know need to be looked at, at in sort of a longer term perspective.
3: Well said. It's great to have some time with you, Tom. Thank you so much, Tom White of DA Davidson. As we say, biggest drop on record for Airbnb, but still got a $72, $73 billion market capitalization. Let's talk about the macro environment which Airbnb is currently, well, working within. Inflation data, as we said, was out today showing signs of actually a bit of a cooling. CPI rising just by 4.9% on a year-on-year basis. But let's go into the insight of how you and I are spending. Are we looking at luxury? Are we holding back our purchases? Riker Jim President, I'm pleased to say, Kristen Gull is with us. And Rakuten is an online shopping platform, partners with thousands of stores to provide data, expertise, technology, both businesses and consumers. And also, you give cash back. And that's a key draw, Kristen. What are you seeing in consumers' desire to be spending right now, particularly on the luxury side of things? We were very worried coming into this year that with
5: all of the inflation pressure that consumers were going to spend significantly less than they'd spent last year. And actually, on the contrary, we've seen a relatively stable spending environment, both on the lower end in the world of marketplaces and in the world of mid-tier department stores. But luxury has been booming. And really, that luxury thread carried throughout the pandemic and has continued into this year in a significant strength in how people are spending,
3: despite the fact that the economy makes them a little nervous. So are they in some ways buying on the luxury end because it's deemed an investment in some way, if I'm thinking of actual real tangible goods? That's exactly what it is. We have a lot
5: of data that's telling us that people are spending differently now. And there's two ways that they're spending differently. Number one, buying less but making it count more. Number two, dealing with things like sustainability where they wanna buy fewer items with less impact on the environment. And what that leads to is people investing in either resale or luxury. And investing in luxury is something that increasingly younger and younger audiences are playing in. We are seeing a lot of data that Gen Z is buying luxury at a significantly earlier age than other generations and I think that really points to people changing the way
3: that they spend. But also there's different offerings of the way in which they spend. How much are you seeing a competitive threat from well the real real or eBay or places you can go and buy second hand or, or pre-used luxury items as an investment? Where do you see that focus from Rakuten at the moment? I
5: think right now that is a massive area of growth in the retail industry is the world of resale and I think for a lot of these younger consumers that was what brought them into the into the luxury fold in the first place. I think the interesting thing is now luxury companies are trying to get in on this volume and get in on that relationship. So you have people like Gucci offering their own resale world on their website right now and basically what it means is that they want to own the customer Mm -hmm. in a way that isn't disintermediated by resale sites. So that's something that I see as part of a massive growth story in retail is resale overall but not just on resale platforms but by brands.
3: How do you keep? your market share in this environment. We're all talking about artificial intelligence. We're all thinking about how we can interact with a consumer more swiftly, productively. How are you looking at updating Rakuten and what your offering looks like when we're interfacing with the e-commerce platform?
5: At the end of the day, our job is to drive growth for our retail partners, and we're doing that in a number of different ways. The first is by increasing the number of players on our site that appeal to consumers. Things like resale, things like more luxury players are really, really important to us. Mm. The second is there's a level of personalization that becomes important. We give cash back to our consumers for shopping at our retailers. That cash back is increasingly personalized to do things like incentivize you to try stores that even never tried before, to incentivize you to make a second purchase at a retailer that you've experienced before. That level of value that we drive, not only is it valuable to our retailers,
3: but it's also really valuable to our consumers. So when you say at the moment, you keep a real loyal customer in many ways, you say when they when a retailer leaves, quite often the shopper remains on 75% of the time here. What is your dream new customer from a a client perspective, from a retailer perspective? You're just talking about Gucci there. Who do you want to lure onto the platform that, that you haven't got yet?
5: Yeah, I think increasingly there is a younger consumer that we're going after. The sort of younger millennial audience and Gen Z is really important to us. A lot of what we've been doing over the last few years is bringing on a lot of direct-to-consumer brands that are more important to that audience and that generation. And then to your point, expanding our luxury environment overall on the platform. We have played really, really hard in luxury department stores for a long time. Individual brands is the next thing I'd love to tackle because that does actually drive a
3: lot of value for that younger millennial and Gen Z consumer. Well you're someone who brings a lot of experience to the role having been well with Rakuten as a general manager since 2018 but plenty other places before that so Kristen we thank you so much for spending some time with us. Rakuten president there. Now from luxury spending to what's going on in the world of Mountain View California right now. Ed, you're a man of luxury. You're covering Google though, developers conference all day for us. What's the key themes?
0: Yeah, look, artificial intelligence, just at the heart of everything here. Thousands of people at Shoreline Mountain View, 230,000 tuning in worldwide. And remember when Google introduced BARD in February, it was always billed as a creative companion, not a replacement for the core search product. So that's the question. What are we going to find out today about how you integrate the large language model, the LLM into a a next generation search engine? What does that functionality look like? And what about Google's other software offerings? before we even get to hardware, Caroline. Yeah,
3: we'll address that a little bit later with you. Brilliant to have you on the ground there. You're gonna be back with us later in the hour, but we're also gonna be there throughout the day. We thank you so much Let's go back to the earnings. Let's get a look at Akamai Technologies. Shares are actually having their best day since 2020 after it reported first quarter results that beat expectations. It gave a full year forecast that was ahead of the analyst consensus. Let's talk about it all with the CEO of Akamai, Tom Layton. Dr. Layton, it's great to have some time with you. Strong given challenging macro headwinds and the pricing pressure. What do you make of the economic environment which you're currently managing to weather better than some had anticipated?
6: It is a challenging environment. Uh, You know, customers are trying to cut back on cost. Uh, There are a couple of ways that uh, help us mitigate that, though. Uh, You know, the first is folks are really concerned about security. And reliability, especially in the financial sector now, the last thing a, a major bank wants is to have an outage. Uh, with the concern that people will think something's wrong, you get a run, and that, that's a big challenge. Uh, and we're the you know the best provider when it comes to reliability and security. So that's been you know uh, helpful for us. Also, as uh, companies need to uh, cut costs, we can help them with our compute solution. Uh, You know, that's now integrated into our delivery platform. And, uh, you know, we are the biggest when it comes to delivery and have a very economical uh, platform for doing that. And so we can help customers reduce their costs, uh, access to cloud computing uh, and delivery.
3: What about your build-out, though? TD Cowan saying that they are longer term a bit more cautious on your stock, given the capital expenditure intensity that's needed to build out the compute part. How are you managing those sorts of costs?
6: Yeah, so we are uh, investing this year to you know jumpstart the base platform, and that will largely be done by the end of Q3. Mm. And then going forward from there, the uh, buildout expense is proportional to the revenue. So if we get a lot of revenue growth, which is what we're hoping and is a good news story, then there'll be more capital expense. And you know if it's a more modest growth on revenue, then you know there won't be all that much capex to worry about. So that'll be pretty much you know uh, done with by the end of. Q3. Uh, We just turned on our first new data center and we have 14 more planned over the next couple quarters.
3: You really do sound optimistic about the clients still spending in this economic environment, particularly on security, just pushback, therefore, on analysts over at Guggenheim who are saying your low double-digit guidance in terms of security growth, they actually say it's somewhat implausible because of this macro environment and the sharp acceleration that's needed in new business. Why do you think that this is plausible, even though you've got some worrying about it?
6: Well, we have the market-leading solutions for web app firewall. You've got to have that Uh, a market-leading solution for bot management, a market-leading solution for ransomware and defending against that. Uh, You know, and you even think about some of the older attacks that are maybe, you think of them as old news like denial of service, you know, just in the last few months you have the KillNet coordinated DDoS attacks against, Mm -hmm. you know, the nation's leading medical centers for goodness sake. Uh, And so security is still very much needed. And, you know, when you're the market leader in these solutions like Akamai is, I'm very optimistic about uh, low double-digit growth this year for our security business. And, of course, now we're adding API security. And as you know, that's very much in the news with all the API attacks that have taken place recently.
3: Yes, exactly. Let's talk from API to AI as well, more broadly, Dr. Layton, because, I mean, you're a man with 50 patents to your name in terms of content delivery and internet protocols, but I'm pretty sure you're thinking of the way in which artificial intelligence is increasing some of those security attacks, as we mentioned, but ultimately upending many a business model right now. Is there any way in which you're thinking that you can harness that or that you're worrying about it?
6: You know, we use AI in a lot of, uh, of our products, particularly in security for anomaly detection, detecting attackers, uh, really, you know, very important. We don't sell AI products per se. Uh, now, I think there's been some very interesting advances uh, recently in AI, generative AI, and uh, you know, one thing about that is it's compute intensive, and so there is the prospect of a lot more need for compute cycles, and that's something that you know would, could ultimately benefit us with our compute platform. In fact, you know, there's early work going on now that would, you know, using algorithms and and scientific methods uh, make it more affordable so that you could do a lot of the work on inference engines using CPUs instead of GPUs, which is a lot more efficient. Uh, So I think there's a lot of exciting results to come there and ultimately, you know, good for business.
3: It really is interesting that we've heard from other security software companies out there thinking it tenable with a revenue forecast that was a bit lackluster, Cloudflare. We have had this worry that people aren't going to invest as much in securing themselves in this environment. So, Is is there any sign from any of your clients that they're just going to have to pull back in that area, or none at all from you? It it does slow down
6: sales cycles some, Uh, you know, in our growth rate uh even in the low double digits is less than it was last year that said we had a strong bookings quarter in security and in fact you know we ended up you know taking business away from you know some of the companies that you mentioned uh, particularly in the financial sector where you know the the leading financial institutions just can't have an outage or an incident or have an attack be successful in this environment, and so it, it, there's a I think they turn to Akamai more now. So where you might see some companies struggling a bit, it's uh, on balance within this environment good for Akamai.
3: Dr. Layton, Tom Layton, Akamai CEO. We thank you for joining us, really spelling out the environment in which we currently find ourselves. Meanwhile, we're also watching other companies that actually are not performing as well on the day as Akamai is. Just check out on internet infrastructure company Twilio falling in terms of 16% on the day. This is a, really is struggling to find its growth right now. We overall see the company posting numbers that did show a, a growth slowdown overall and this is a business that's trying to find its footing, footing amid the macro weak macro that Jeffries is saying a small beat overall in this quarter but it really is the margin turnaround on this particular company is being overshadowed by a weak macro picture going forward so deterioration its net revenue retention rate in the outlook for the second quarter points to more difficult days ahead. Coming up look let's talk about days ahead in the race to compete with the likes of ChatGPT more on how SoftBank is getting in on the action that's next that's Bloomberg. Time now for talking tech. And first up, monthly sales in Taiwan. Semiconductor manufacturing, TSMC, fell for a second month. This as consumer demand for electronics just slows. Sales of made-to-order chips, they're down 14% from a year earlier, signaling that the chip sector's slump. Let's get to bottom. Meanwhile, also over in Asia, SoftBank's mobile unit is building a Japanese version of, you guessed it, ChatGPT, joining the already intense race to create the next generation AI. The telecoms company is actually setting up a new entity in March to develop the technology. The CEO didn't elaborate on the project's goals or progress so far. And let's look at content right now, because Tucker Carlson says that he's turning to Twitter to launch a new show. After, of course, being fired from Fox News last month, Carlson posted a three-minute video online saying he would bring a new version of his Fox News program. Although, you know, Musk says he hasn't signed any sort of deal. Let's dig into this with plans not set in stone. What would a program actually look like on a platform like Twitter? And what are the concerns around content moderation? Felix Gillette is with us, is Bloomberg News. Interesting that many would say he left Fox or was pushed out of Fox because advertisers weren't comfortable, so what makes how does Is it subscription-based this time around?
7: It's kind of hard to say because, yeah, advertisers were uncomfortable with Tucker Carlson's show on Fox. They've been uncomfortable with Elon Musk's version of Twitter. So do you take two negatives? Does it make a positive? It's hard to imagine that happening. Um, you know, Elon Musk has been trying to get more subscription money for Twitter, getting people to sign up for Twitter Blue. That's been a struggle. So maybe uh, getting some very diehard Tucker Carlson fans to sign up and subscribe to a show. Um, it's all a little bit hard to imagine. I mean, if you think about, like, video on Twitter, I was thinking about what's the most successful video on Twitter over the years. I would have to say it's Vine, which was six-second loops of comedians and people talking. And you're going to take an hour-long show and somehow put it on this platform that has no real history of TV shows? It's <coughs> going to be
3: show used to stream on Twitter. But there is, <laughs> but there is an interesting viewpoint overall about just the way in which we consume as yeah. well. I mean, how much is there a indication that people will want three minute long pieces of information and indeed right. shows anywhere you go because is there anything that resembles another social media network that's done content delivery done shows like this in, in a decent manner
7: i mean you know snapchat uh youtube facebook like people have experimented with different links and different kinds of shows political shows on social media platforms but news isn't
3: actually but news, done that well yeah
7: and you know tucker he has these home studios that he built during the pandemic um he's got a very robust and loyal audience mm. um so, you know, how is that going to be monetized? It's hard to imagine, but it does give him a voice and the platform to keep himself relevant during the political campaign that's coming up, as opposed to just being on the sidelines until he finds a new uh, cable network that would take him.
3: Rumble shares on that note, we're well, on the downside after the news. Felix Gillette, always great to get his take on all these things. We thank him. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's have a quick check on your markets because we've actually seen a reprieve in tech stocks again on the back of inflation data that shows maybe this pricing pressure is cooling. Of course, interest rate sensitive tech stocks do well in the NASDAQ 100 up more than seven tenths of percent as inflation comes in sub five percent year on year. We're looking at 10 year yield getting a bid. That's as we maybe anticipate the Fed will maybe be able to take that pause in its hiking cycle. We're down seven basis points. Bitcoin does higher as the dollar goes lower. We're up more than two percent. Flick it on. Let's go into some of the individual names, though, because we've had an extraordinary amount of earnings still to be digesting. A firm on the higher side up more than 4%. Even though there was some caution after the numbers dropped about overall buy now, pay later, the overall headwinds in this macro environment of consumer, but many an analyst thinking that this is a stock that can weather, can perform at the moment, so we're up more than 4%. Datadog, it's a local company, New York-based, up 6%. Guess what? It's got an integration with OpenAI and people like it. The fact that it's going to be checking in on how companies interact with ChatGPT and like products. So Datadog on the upside, Airbnb very much on the downside, having its worst fall as a publicly traded company after its forward-looking guidance was a little bit weak. Let's talk about other earnings, because there are more, thick and fast, in the EV space in particular. Blink Charging just reported revenue for the first quarter. Look, it missed some analyst estimates out there, but it's still more than doubling revenues. The EV charging stations company is really continuing to transition to an in-house manufacturing model. Gross margin profile is expected to improve throughout 2023 and the next year. Let's talk about it all with the relatively new, recently appointed CEO, Brendan Jones. Of course, you were at the business already and now taking the CEO mantle, Brendan. And just talk to us about the revenue drivers here. Who is wanting to get their hands on these charging stations across the United States?
8: Absolutely, so this space is on fire. Uh, As more and more states start to adopt provisions that say that internal combustion engines can no longer be sold past 2035, we're seeing an increasing emphasis on charging and who's asking for it? You've got everything from municipalities to private ownerships, to big real estate groups, to state parks that want to have charging for new sport utility vehicles that are EV and of course the federal government. Uh, We're very proud to have been one, the United States Post Office Service put out a bid for 45,000 chargers. We won part of that deal and we've already begun to install those chargers with USPS. So the goal right now is to make sure that we can get as many chargers out there to service the EV buying public. And Blink right now, as you saw, we're on double digit growth between last year and this year. And we we see that trend continuing for the foreseeable future.
3: How does the US stack up versus Europe, Asia, Latin America? I know these are all markets that you're analyzing and, and in.
8: Yeah, so what you see in Europe is a little bit progression of the model. So they're much further ahead on both the car sales and the penetration of chargers in the public space. So U.S. is following right behind that. So while they're a little ahead, we see ourselves as catching up. Now, a lot in Europe is policy-driven uh, to mandate charging and mandate the purchase of electric vehicles. We have some policy initiatives that make it easy to adopt, And then we have the federal funding for the NEVI program, the two billion dollars from the Biden administration to accelerate infrastructure. So the U.S. is more show us, but I'll tell you, the auto OEMs—they're bringing out the cars (laughs) today. You have some of the most versatile, sexiest, high-speed cars on the market that are all EVs. What do you have? So, so I transitioned just recently out of an Audi e-tron, which is a beautiful car uh you know full ev all the way but all everything you expected in a luxury car. Now I'm looking at a couple different models some domestic uh-huh. uh and, and, and some uh made overseas as well hmm. uh so uh my goal in life was to always own a Mustang so I'm not hitting that I might be a monkey, but I'm definitely leading in that direction.
3: What about um, the inside focus on where you're buying, but what about the innovation that Blink's doing at the moment as well? Because, uh, yes, it would be lovely, of course, to have the infrastructure there that we can all pull up and be able to speedily charge our cars. But what about if you're on the move? What about if you've been breaking down? You're having, I mean, I know you had a whole host of different kind of options on Array at CES this year.
8: Yeah, and absolutely. And what we want to do is service the plethora of charging needs uh, for the public. And that means you've got to have fast chargers on the highway that can fuel a vehicle in under 30 minutes, or in some cases under 15, depending on the speed of the battery. Then you also have to have home-based charging. When we look at McKinsey data, it tells us that 90% of the charging that's going to take place globally is what we call Level 2. Uh, Charging, And then the other 10% is going to be DC fast charging, which is the faster must-have charging. But also, as you pointed out, there's this need for what we call a rescue charger. So if you run out of uh, charge, just like you run out of gas, we also have products to satisfy that market. So we can charge you up on the go and get you back to a charger as soon as possible. So our job is to cover the home to cover the public, to cover the municipalities, and to cover the highway with charging and make sure we have options and innovative products to serve the general uh, the general needs out there.
3: Are you growing that and innovating organically? Or I know that you make quite a lot of acquisitions as well. Do you want to do bolt-ons to be able to add that sort of level of offering?
8: Yeah, so we continue to be an inquisitive company. Uh, so where acquisitions make sense, we will pursue them. Uh, we just acquired a uh, car-sharing uh, company called Envoy, uh, who basically has people engage with them on a car-by-car basis. They get it. They're all EVs. They get it for a day, for an hour, etc. They charge on our charging stations. And then we have Blue LA, which is our mobility program uh, in Los Angeles. And under Blue LA, we have 200 stations that have two to three cars on them. And the general public comes in there takes a car for a day, gets a chance to be in an EV, and they serve both the general public and the underserved communities simultaneously. And we do both the cars and the charging.
3: Brendan, what's the regulatory environment for you for making these sorts of acquisitions at the moment? I know you're not a big cap player yet at the moment, but what are the concerns about making acquisitions of other companies?
8: Well, you have to make sure that these acquisitions, when we're looking at them, you have a high degree of synergies. If you don't, it doesn't make sense because the acquisition of, and of in and of itself has to fit into our business models. If it doesn't, we're going to pass, because the synergies are what makes that very valid. And when you look at acquisitions in general and you benchmark other companies, you see where they failed was they didn't get the synergies. So we put a lot of money, we work with McKinsey mm-hmm. to outline, set a path, and set a timeline associated to bid revenue synergies G&A synergies, and then product synergies across the board. Without that, we're not going to do any acquisitions. We need that to be efficient and to really get to global scale.
3: We thank you giving us the global perspective, Blink CEO, Brendan Jones. And look, let's just focus on M&A a little bit more in the world of tech, because Bloomberg research has found that U.S. government's current aggressive stance on antitrust is actually a really chilling merger activity among the country's biggest companies, with some deals never making it past the boardroom. Let's bring in, I'm pleased to say, right here in New York, Leah Nyland, who's over from Washington, to break it all down. And this story really showing just how much of a chilling effect. Just can you paint the picture of where we've been and, and where we've come to because of the action of the administration? Yeah. So um,
9: the Biden administration really came in strong on antitrust. They really felt that the past administrations were a little too easy on mergers and letting big deals go through with only settlements or maybe like um, challenging only a couple of the bigger ones. But the Biden administration has been really aggressive on this so far. Since the antitrust enforcers came in in July of 2021, they have challenged seven. Uh, cases in court, but they've also um, raised antitrust concerns about another 26. So those abandoned, uh, those deals were abandoned before they even made it to court. So they have quite a record of, um, you know,
3: killing off deals so far. How much are they ultimately tech savvy? We know that at the FTC, they've got a very much a leader, Leah Khan, who's focused on the world of technology, did an awful lot of work within big tech, but there is a talk now about AI being a new area in which we get competitive overreach and, and, and monopolistic capabilities. How much of those sort of conversations you're having, is it all about big tech and the stifling there, or does this cro- go across industry?
9: It goes across industries. If you look at a lot of the deals that they have blocked, um, you've seen a lot in the healthcare sector. You see some in, you know brick-and-mortar industries like concrete and cement. But the big tech ones are definitely ones that are they're paying a lot of attention to. You know, The big case that the um, FTC challenged last year was the one between Meta Platforms and uh, Within, which was actually just a small um, startup focused on virtual reality. Um, one of the um, anecdotes in our story was actually about Google abandoning an acquisition because they had some concerns about um, the antitrust problems that it could raise. Um, and both of the leaders of the NHS agencies right now, that's Lena Khan at the FTC, and Jonathan Cantor at the Justice Department, have said that they're actually looking really closely at AI because they're very concerned that some of the biggest companies, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons of the world, really have the resources to devote to AI, and they're really concerned that they might try you know, buying up a lot of the people who are really focused on that and sort of dominating the AI
3: market in the way that they have really been able to dominate the web. What's interesting is some would say FTC action, for example, hasn't actually been that successful. Yeah. Does that give companies, you're speaking to, a bit more resilience and optimism they can get these deals through, or or they look more at what the UK is up to with Microsoft and they think, okay, no?
9: It it really depends. You know, companies that are more um, risk-averse aren't really going to want to put the time and the money into this. because Mm. The increased antitrust really is dragging some of these things out. Um, But really big deals like Microsoft, Activision, they're still going forward even in the face of regulatory scrutiny. So that one, the UK has blocked. The FTC has um, brought litigation against it that's supposed to go to trial later this year. We're still waiting on the EU to make a decision. It will later this um, month. But it's unclear if that one's going to go through, just because when you get that many lawsuits against
3: a deal, it becomes really hard to move forward. Leon, it's great to have you right here in New York. Appreciate it. We thank her for that great story. And Ashley, we were just talking about the worries around AI dominance. Well, coming up, we've got a great conversation to have in the world of generative AI with Alida. Scale AI is deploying new tools to help its clients safely and responsibly integrate the technology into their systems We're going to have a conversation with the founder the CEO Alexandra Wang But let's talk about potential monopolies building in the space or wannabe monopolies Because Palantir up another day after its earnings came out And they talked about the unprecedented demand for its own AI offering The CEO Alex Karp get this saying that they just want to take the whole market That's the strategy for AI apparently from New York, this is back. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
2: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
3: Scale AI is a leader in creating generative AI systems and it's launching two new platforms to help its customers apply AI systems within their networks. Joining now is Alexander Wang, the founder and CEO of Scale AI. And Alex, at the moment I'm trying to wade through Palantir that wants to take the whole market. We had Salesforce on interjecting ChatGPT within its offerings for Slack and for Tableau. We've got IBM with WatsonX. What exactly are you offering that's kind of different from the others?
10: Yeah, so so at scale, we've been in the AI industry for more than seven years now. We've been quietly powering much of the modern revolution in generative AI. And what we're seeing today is a lot of AI tourists pretending to be AI natives. You know, there's a lot of companies who are not selling solutions. They're ultimately just selling vaporware. Um, and our products, you know, they aren't coming soon. They're in the hands of customers today uh, from the Fortune 500 to the U.S. Department of Defense. And we don't see many other platforms that can say that. So today, we're, we're proud to introduce um, our two new generative AI platforms, Scale Donovan and Scale EGP, uh, to unlock the power of AI for every industry from the U.S. government to global enterprise. Uh, our, our Donovan uh, product is our platform, which is the first large language model deployed on a classified network for the U.S. government. And with Donovan, uh, our warfighters can act in minutes instead of weeks. And our customers today include the U.S. Army's 18th Airborne Corps, the DOD's uh, CDAO, uh, and the Joint all domain Command and Control effort in particular, and the Marine Corps University School of Advanced Warfighting.
3: So, uh, just to go back, are you saying that Palantir, with its mm, machine learning and its already integration with the Defense Department, for example, that's an AI tourist?
10: So, you know, I think the, the key thing to look at with any one of these platforms is whether or not they have customers that are live with the technology today mm-hmm. who are using it actively. And, you know, I think um, there are plenty of platforms that are touting huge announcements, but that do not have any live uh, customers and any activity today, and they have oftentimes coming soon um, as as sort of the headline on their on their homepages. So I think that's one of the key things to look at. You know, we at scale, we've worked with OpenAI since 2019, working on much of the technology that's undergirded ChatGPT and other technologies, work with much of the rest of the ecosystem, such as Microsoft, Meta, mm. um, uh, working with folks like Stability, Adept, uh, Carper, Cohere. And so this is, you know, We've been in this industry, we have, are one of the companies with the greatest amount of experience in generative AI, and we're excited to actually bring that expertise to the enterprise and to government customers.
3: And to the White House, in terms of evaluating platforms, right, just remind us that, is, is it going to be your platform that they're using at DEF CON 31 to be able to basically test and understand how Hugging Face, Anthropic, Google actually work?
10: Yeah, exactly. So um, we we are Switzerland, we are not beholden to any one platform. And in in fact, we've been quietly partnering with most of the AI industry. As a result, we're the perfect partner to be to, to work with the White House and with DEF CON in using our platform to actually evaluate all of these models that are being built and understand what the implications and safety implications of these models are. You know, we believe that progress in foundation models needs to happen um, hand in hand and alongside progress in model evaluation and safety. And that's really what we've built our platform to help enable and why our platform is, is going to be the one that's used, uh, in, again, in partnership with the White House, in partnership with DEF CON um, to, to help understand these models.
3: What do you think you'll find, Alex? Do you think you'll find safe and and solid spaces being crafted for new models, or, or are you a little bit more worried?
10: You know, I think broadly within the industry, one of the thing that's hap- one of the thing that's happened is these models have all been released and have have been released out into the world um, before much of this testing has taken place out in the public. And so, you know, I think invariably we're going to find some things that are that are going to be concerning. But I think we're also going to find that many of the builders of these models have actually. Put a huge amount of thought into the systems that they're developing, and so I think we'll see a range. You know, there will be some models that are significantly safer than others, and even the models that are safe, I think we'll continue to find things that you know we need to work on, we need to improve. You know, our goal with this, um, with this, or in our work with the White House and with DEFCON, is really in releasing a platform that, and and a framework that can be used across. for the rest of, for the, in perpetuity by the industry. We Mm. want to create an evaluation system that we can always use to evaluate the quality and performance of these models going forward.
3: But does it matter if we put regulation on the United States or developed nations do when others, many would say China, Russia, don't? And what does that look like? Because technology doesn't have that many boundaries.
10: Yeah, I think this is this is a really really important question. You know, I think that yeah, the, the topic of AI regulation is certainly an important one. And um, and as we've seen with AI to date, the key to human centric, responsible AI is really a solid data foundation. Um, you know, for a technology as transformative this, I think it's very important to consider the questions on AI regulation and and what are the what are the consumer impacts of this technology. One of the reasons why we're so so excited about the work that we're doing with the White House and others. Um, that being said, like you mentioned, our adversaries, our near peer competitors, like Russia and China, will not let regulation get in the way of their ambitions. And in fact, I think it's quite the opposite. They will use these tools to tighten their grip on, you know, domestic social and political control. Uh, so, you know,
3: no, we'll finish that thought.
10: Yeah. So, you know, in China, you know, the the um, the content of their AI systems you know, will need to reflect their socialist core values and and avoid information that that undermines their state power and national unity. And so, you know, you see intent from our near peer competitors um, to to use this technology to further their ambitions. And again, they won't they won't overregulate to prevent the, the 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 proliferation and spread of the technology.
3: Very briefly, open source versus not. Where do you come down on all of that?
10: So uh, our belief is that enterprises and government customers need as many options as possible. And so our view, again, as I mentioned, we're Switzerland. We want to enable our customers to be able to use open source models as well as the best closed source models from um, Anthropic, OpenAI, here, et cetera, uh, to be able to achieve their ambitions. So um, I think it's really a question of, of, of choice. You know, I think the more options that there are in the ecosystem, the better. Uh, and, and our goal is to enable as many of them as possible.
3: Alex Wang, great to spend some time with you, founder and CEO. Scale AI. (laughs) We've got to go back to our one and only Ed Ludlow in Mountain View at Google I.O., which is about to officially kick off, and I imagine a whole host of conversation around Bard and artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, look, this is the developers' conference, but it's all about AI. And really what we want to know is about a more conversational version of Google Search. So much emphasis on BARD when it was released in February, but it was always meant to be a creative companion. So how have they taken their work on the large language models and moving the the, the needle forward in terms of that core search product? That's the big question for the thousands of developers that are here, but also worldwide virtually.
3: What about the developers that want to be building on pieces of hardware? kit that Google makes. Where are we seeing the iteration of the Pixel?
0: Yeah, so we expect them to, to unveil Pixel Fold, a, a large form factor folding smartphone. And you ask, well, how does that relate to AI? But if you speak to developers or analysts, they say, well, look how big it is. Think about the processing power. What are the future on the inference side of AI use cases that you can do with a phone like that? Google has 1% of the smartphone market. Flip phones or folding phones are 1% of that market in itself. It's tiny. So how are they going to move the needle forward here, grow their business? and do deeply integrate AI throughout all of their software and hardware offerings, Karen. Ed,
3: great to have what's happening on the ground. Go run off to that next speech that you're going to be listening to. Ed Ludlow, we thank him. He's going to have so much more for you throughout the day on Bloomberg TV from Google I.O. But that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Stay with us for an exclusive conversation from Google I.O., the head of Google Devices and Services. Don't want to miss it. This is Bloomberg.
2: Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon, Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.